Hey folks, it's Ben here from Paddle. The following is an episode that originally aired on January 26th, 2021. It's absolutely still relevant today, and we've got a dedicated field guide for you in the show notes as always. Once you're done with that, check out sasverticals.com to see a brand new show from Paddle. It's basically the show that SaaS geeks have been dreaming about. With that, on with Protect the Hustle. Our world is full of problems. On the macro level, we have things like climate change, infectious diseases, hunger, poverty, and the list unfortunately goes on. On our individual level, we have pushing and building our companies, finding fulfillment, and yes, dealing with Aunt Marcella and her antics. Yet you can't solve a problem. You can agree that something like climate change is a problem, and (laughs) that took a while. But if you seek to solve the problem, you're doing the equivalent of throwing a bunch of stuff up against the wall and hoping something sticks. Instead, you need to break that problem down into root causes and impact. Climate change, for instance, has a multitude of causes, all with varying levels of impact. You have cow farts and burps, which have less impact than factory emissions. One of these is also easier to solve than the other. Only when you've thought things through can you pick the right causes to focus on given the resources that you have. And when you solve for a cause, you truly find solutions to mitigate the systemic problem that you're going after. What we just used is something called problem-cause-solution, which is a framework. And frameworks work for getting everyone on the same page and ensuring you're prioritizing where you'll have the most impact. It's a way of thinking through a problem. Frameworks are all around us, and the best amongst them tell us not only the how to get after mitigating a problem, but also the why. And perhaps no one is better at representing frameworks than the deity of frameworks himself, known as Brian Belfour. Brian's been a good friend of mine for a decade since we met in Boston, and he's led growth at ZoomInfo, HubSpot, and is now the founder and CEO of Reforge, an education platform that helps those in tech accelerate their careers by teaching them the how and the why, the frameworks, for thinking through business's toughest problems. He's one of the deepest thinkers I know, and his thoughts on how you should think are coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Brian Belfour advises you on how to avoid getting sucked into traps, using perspective to get everyone on the same page, creating tools to reveal answers, the importance of shared language, and understanding nuances to unlock frameworks. Let's start with what's the harshest feedback you've received in your life so far? I knew you'd start with this question. Um, It's the most important one. I feel like it's the most exciting one. I'm sure I received some extremely harsh feedback when I was young, but the hardest feedback I received in my career was while at HubSpot uh, and came from Brian Halligan, the CEO. For context, so I was brought into HubSpot when we just had the marketing product I was supposed to help start this new division to help grow new products and new verticals, primarily the sales space. And so when I started, we were like, uh, this new product division was like six people, something like that, maybe maybe seven people. And um, there was like an initial product, uh, like MVP that we had. I remember getting in there and um, I had a couple of team members uh, to start with. And the very first thing that I wanted to do was spend about two to three weeks just doing customer research 
and um, like defining like personas and some of the motivations and stuff. Cause I had never worked on, I've never been a salesperson. I had never worked on sales software before and all of these things. There was a few other people on the team that were heavy pushback. They were like, that's like an effing waste of time. Like, why are you doing that? And like, as like my first few weeks, like that was, yeah, as my first few weeks, I was like, you know, that's a big, that's a big risk. Like, I, I feel like I was like already spending um, a trust chip, you know, uh, I was like, no, 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 like, like we need to do this. Um so we did it anyways, did it three weeks and um, did the whole research, came up with personas. It was great. Like, like aligned the team around it. A year into this product develop, like into this product, we had grown it quite a bit, um, but we were at like a key critical crossroads and debate um, strategically as a team, as an executive team uh, about uh, where we wanted to take the direction of the product. There was some people on the team that felt like we weren't targeting the right customers um, and mo- more importantly, like, um, the customers didn't, that we were acquiring on this product didn't necessarily align with the historical customer base of like HubSpot. So I remember this meeting with, um, Brian Halligan, um, where he brought me in and he was like, you know, I feel like there was a critical mistake here and it was your mistake. You didn't really define, uh, the target audience for this product. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> And I was like, okay, so like, imagine you being in my seat, like, like thinking back to those first few weeks, like having spent that trust trip. And of course, naturally, like in the moment, I was angry, right? I was like, like, I felt like I was taking, I was taking the blame for something that um, like I did and that like I fought for and like so on and so forth. And so of course, like in the mo, like in the moment, yeah, I, I was, I was angry. I was emotional and all that kind of stuff. After getting some distance from that, um, I realized that his feedback wasn't necessarily, you didn't do this thing. The, the thing that was behind that feedback was like, yes, I did that thing, but I didn't like communicate it in the best way that I could have. I didn't align it with the company, the historical company strategy, right? Like I hadn't done the next few things. And like, that was the real message behind the message. It's not like Halligan had contact context to like every single thing that I did for like every single thing a week. Like he, like he just saw some like distant output um, of it, of it all. So I say that was like the harshest feedback just because of the amount of like, effort in like emotional buy-in and like how it just felt on the surface. But with some distance behind that, what I just realized with that feedback was, is usually with feedback, when it feels wrong to you, there is like a message behind the message, right? And it's up to you to like actually figure out what that is, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably something like that you did. And I even think about even other experiences, same experiences of like, maybe I did the work, maybe I did it the right way, but the communication, the alignment of strategy or like some other component wasn't there. And so in the end, it still feels like, you know, like a failure in in some way uh, in in other people's eyes. And so that was just a tough one for me to to take, especially from the CEO, uh, like of your company. And uh, yeah. So that was, that was the one that, that stung for sure. Yeah. I didn't know that story. That's, that's harsh, man. I I think it's, but you bring up a really good thing with feedback. It's like, we're kind of uncomfortable with it because especially when we feel like we did the thing that we're getting feedback on. And then it's like, Oh, what you mean by this is X, Y, Z. And I only did X and Y. Right. Which is always, you know, always tough. 
What did you learn from your first job? It, it really depends on how you define it. So like my first job where I probably got like a W2 statement was I was a caddy at a golf course. I'd probably say like the big lesson there was just like, like, don't be an asshole. Um, it sounds really simple, but, um, I was a caddy at this golf course in Michigan. It was like a country club for people who weren't really rich, but wanted to think they were rich, uh, type of deal. Right. And so I caddied and it was great. And, but one day I was like double bagging. I was a seventh grader by the time. And I was like a skinny weak seventh grader. Right. So like double carrying two golf bags at once on like a six mile long course, it was brutal. Um, so I was double bagging this one time. And this guy, I don't know, we were like on the sixth hole or something like that. And uh, he had hit a shot into the sand trap. And I was standing there uh, like with the bag and a gust of wind came along. And uh, there are these plastic tags on the wood covers that um, ended up clinking against the iron. It goes clink, 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 right as he was taking a shot. Oh, and no. he just like bullets it, it over the green onto the other side, side. And he turns around to me and he's like, He's like, what are you? He's just yelling. He's like, what are you doing? I hit that bad shot because of you, right? Like you like blamed the whole thing on me. I just, I walked off the course. That was my last day at the golf course. Um, oh, wow. Well, yeah. that's awesome. I, I was, I was, I was just, I was so like, I was so done with it, but my parents like were, were so mad at me that I did that. And um, they're like, how are you going to get another job? I was like, I was in seventh grade, right? Like, um, <laughs> Yeah, it was just like one of those situations where I was, I was just like, when somebody's working your ass off, off when they're working your, their ass off for you, you have zero right to be an asshole to them. It just like left a big uh, impression on me. And I see this in the tech industry now. There's just like, um, I won't name names, but there's certain like successful VCs and investors or founders out there. And uh, I just see them publicly being assholes to people um, kind of because they can. And they kind of cover it up with like a thing of like, uh, like, like, I'm just like brutally honest. And I'm like, no, man, you're an asshole. Yeah. Like you're successful, but it's just, um, it, they're not the type of people that I want to invest in or spend my time on. Second lesson real quick. First job, real job post-college was I was a product manager at Zoom Info. This guy named Russell Glass, um, hired me off my blog, which at the time was, was like, say, a, it's just a blog. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the time, like I think myself and this other my friend uh, Jeff Clark, who we also also hired off a blog, uh, we got in the Wall Street Journal because hiring somebody off a blog was so crazy at the time. Anyways, <laughs> now it's like common days. Um, but I was a product manager at Zoom Info, and I remember about like six months in, I received another job offer from another startup in Boston to become like a senior product manager. And I was like, like six months, like I have been in a product like six months, and. Um, I remember I I told him I told my boss about it, Russell Glass about it at the time, and he was super honest and transparent with me. He was like, "Look, you are not ready. You're not ready to become like a senior product manager. You don't have enough experience and like all that kind of stuff." I was probably like trying to fast forward my career a little bit too much, and that was like the really the first time where I sat back and valued. It actually takes some real time to like learn and absorb and gain things. And like the further I go in my career, the more I look back and I'm like, wow, I really didn't know shit then. I did not know any, like I did not know anything then. And so I just see it now, especially in Reforge of like, uh, not even not in Reforge, but I see like other people, for example, like the other day I was on LinkedIn, I saw somebody post, uh, they got a product executive 
certificate from this like other professional education company and said that he was like looking for um, product leadership jobs, but he only had one year of product management experience. I get it. Like people are selling these like certifications that almost feel like shortcuts and, and stuff. And, but I see like a lot of people just falling into that trap. I'm sorry, but like one year of product management experience and a, a certificate does not make you ready to be a qualified like product leader, right? Don't get sucked into the, the traps of the shortcuts because a lot of people are trying to sell them right now. What's the biggest risk you've taken so far in your career? And it can be with Reforge or, you know, with, you know, anything. Cause you, you've had some, you've had some doozies in, in the, the, the deep seats there. I mean, look, like this is my fourth startup or something like that. I mean, it's funny because I remember when I raised money for my uh, first company, I called my parents and told them like, Hey, we just raised $5 million for this thing. And my mom said uh, her immediate reply was like, well, like, what are you, like, how are you going to do that and keep your product manager job at Zoom Info? Right? Like, <laughs> totally, totally different. Didn't it? Did it click to her that that like, hey, like this just became my job, right? Like, different different levels of like mentality around risk. I mean, I probably took some stupid stuff like in the moment that paid off. Like, I angel invested when I did not have that much money in the bank, right? Uh, like, that was probably a really dumb thing. Look, I left HubSpot a very good role, a lot of fucking money on the table to do Reforge. And Reforge is still like, like yet to play out. If it went to zero, that would be the most costly by a lot. Um, <laughs> from a, from uh, a ever, yeah, yeah. ever in my crew. I actually think the biggest risk we are about to take, we are about to go through a very big, I don't wouldn't call it pivot, but transformation for Reforge into a new model. And it's tough for us because we're essentially putting an eight-figure business on the line, um, like a working eight-figure business, to on like just completely uprooting and changing it because we believe that there is like a bigger future in this like new model. But it could totally tank. It could to- <laughs> it could totally tank, and it would be very hard to reverse. And so, like, I don't know, maybe we can roll back to this in like six months to a year to see if it's like actually working. But I think all those things lined up. I left HubSpot to start Reforge, left a lot on the table, built it to this point. And now I'm, we're about to like throw that all away again to like take a totally different shot. Yeah, I don't know. I think some people probably view that as like a very dumb thing to do. But um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm doing this to take a shot at building something big. So, um, and I think there's, we think there's like a bigger future in that. So I don't know, that's probably the biggest risk at the moment. I, I have some insight, which I won't share because I don't think it's ready for obviously, and it's your news, but uh, I think you just have the founder scaries. I actually think that, <laughs> I don't think it's- so, Which are real. Founder scaries oh, are real, totally man. real. Yeah, don't get me yeah. wrong, don't get me wrong. But I think it's, I think it's one of those ideas that, yes, it's scary, it's a change. I actually don't think it would be that hard to roll back. I think mm, maybe would, not. I think you would. I think you would feel like, oh my god, we just did something terrible. I think it's a lot more of a hedge decision than you think, but that's my opinion. And since we can't talk about it publicly, or we can do yeah. it offline. But uh, yeah, speaking of your parents, though, you you mentioned your mom there. Like, what did your parents do, and and what did you learn from them? So funny enough, both of my parents were teachers, and uh, I told them Explain I would never so become much. a teacher. 
<laughs> yes, I to- I told them I would never become a teacher. They laugh at me now because it's essentially what uh, like reforges, just in a very different form. Yeah, my mom taught uh, basic various various levels of college math, and uh, my dad taught like various um, like AP uh, like history and other types of classes in in high school. And so, yeah, grew up in Michigan, Michigan, um, like middle class. And I think the biggest thing from my parents was um, obviously education was a very big thing in our household. But both my parents, yeah, they just grew up in a very different, like going back to the story I mentioned earlier, just much more conservative around career and risk taking. And it was probably wasn't until like I was 31 and got married and had like at least some success right um around these entrepreneurial paths that i think it like finally clicked for them that like this was like a real path as i'm sure many parents now are probably struggling with watching their kids all want to be tiktok influencers right like they're like is that real is that a real path right like and maybe maybe it's not right like maybe it's not but it seems like this whole the creator economy has some like real muscle behind it so that conservativeness still influences me today especially around things like money. I'm very good at picking apart uh, things and finding um, the possible problems. And so it takes a lot for me to then like flip that view into a positive view of like how to, how to solve those problems, like how to solve those problems or how to make those problems like our opportunities, like how to use that muscle for good. Because I think going back to the founder scaries, right? Like, that can very quickly like spiral out of in a very negative direction of like, yeah. I see this problem. I see this problem. I see this problem. We're effed <laughs> like, like doomsday event. Right. And um, you equally are like, but we're going to be a billion dollar company. Like at the same time, it's like a very weird. Yeah. Process. And so, and what I've known is like, I've gotten comfortable with seeing the problems, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody in my team is and so I have to be careful in the way that I like I communicate them um, because like sometimes it comes across as a story to a doomsday story to them, mm-hmm. but in my mind I'm just like listing them out, being like, "Awesome, let's get them out there so that we can like form a hypothesis, a point of view, and and or something else around that." It kind of goes back to that Halligan story of like I think people are. It's not so much about how you do like what you do. It's like how do you put yourself in the view of the various other people's seats to see like how you are coming off. Right. I think that's like a very hard thing for people to do and why like most people are takes a long time for them to learn communication because they don't realize like how many times they need to repeat something, how they need to package it in a story, how to structure it as building blocks, like all these types of things. So I think my parents like heavily influenced me in like kind of roundabout way in roundabout ways, like neither one of them are entrepreneurs, but a lot of their tendencies have obviously popped up in, in my life in later years. My dad still wants me to go to med school. So mm-hmm. that's still happening. He's like, well, you could be a good doctor. You should go be a doctor. So I, I yeah, that's pretty, it's a pretty common story for everyone. And I have like an 11 month old, uh, at home. So it's commonly on my mind of like how you like how to raise your kid in a more yeah. like less um, uh, dictation, right? Type yeah. Of, type of environment. You can do so. whatever you want, but I also want to give you some direction. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a TikTok influencer. No. <laughs> Reforge 
the quality of the content, I don't think people realize is so high. Because there's a lot of courses out there, right? There's a lot of like little courses that you can find on different sites. You know, some companies put together their own courses, but you guys actually spend like, and I would say it's 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 a you know MBA level semester um, compressed into six weeks, and probably doesn't feel like it's you know too much. Um, but it's a you're really really quickening quickening that path to learning. Yeah, we're trying to. Uh, I, I like. I agree. We spend a lot of time in the age of where we're at now there's like where anybody can spin up a twitter account or a substack newsletter and start like repeating other people's thoughts good information feels abundant the noise to signal ratio is much lar- is larger and growing um so more noise less signal uh as part of that because real in-depth actionable uh hard-earned insights takes many many hours and repetitions of like synthesis, which is like the hardest part of like creation, in my opinion, is like that synthesis component. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of our students have said it's been the six weeks is more valuable than their Kellogg, Stanford, HBS, like MBA, because we do. And at the same time, a lot of people think it's overwhelming, but that's what we're trying to do is like give like a super fast injection of a lot of of a lot of things so that you have the broader picture of things so that you can find the most impactful problem for you to work on in your organization because a lot of career success these days comes down to like being able to find the most impactful problems in the in in your organization and then work on them and then share to like get recognition um like internally and externally like that's kind of like it's kind of a loop, a never-ending loop that you go through. Finding those meaningful, impactful problems um, is hard for a lot of people because they don't have like the full landscape where there's like a bunch of unknown unknowns. And so what we're trying to do is like, let's fill in that map super quick, right? And so and turn those unknown unknowns um, into like, I don't know what part of the framework that goes. And now they're known unknowns or something like known things that um, you know their problems. And as part of that, you've just taken a giant step in being able to navigate and create impact for yourself. And so like that's kind of the that's kind of the whole goal of, of these programs. But yeah, they take hundreds of hours uh, of re- of custom research to create. You have a pricing monetization course, you have a retention course, these types of things. But your core core course, um, you know, around growth, is it safe to say, and, and you might not characterize it this way, but I think you're teaching people how to think. And I think that there's this gap, unfortunately, unless you choose specific college, you know, undergrads or, you know, specific, you know, high school courses, these types of things that you don't, you don't learn how to think. And what I, what I've found from a lot of your content is it teaches you not only how to think in the way that you just said, like, how do you identify things? How do you put them in an unknown bucket, known bucket, but also then you have an actual practical application of, you know, how to run a growth framework, you know, inside an organization. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Something that we talk internally a lot about is like, how do we um, create the tools, not the answers? One of the most impactful things that I think you can learn is like, um, have like a set of tools in a tool belt and know how to match the right tool to the right problem. Uh, and you'd be able to use that tool across multiple things. Just, I'll just give an example of like one that everybody is probably aware of, right? Like a, a design sprint, right? That is essentially a tool to solve a very specific type of problem that a product team might face. Mm. Um, but that is like one of 
many, many tools. But a lot of people get distracted by like trying to seek out the answer, right? Like they have this problem. And yes, you need to get to the answer. That is the ultimate end goal. And they try to seek out that answer by like asking other people or reading a bunch of other content online that's like saying, like, here's the top 10 things to do this. Even if you like find the quote unquote answer, apply it and it works, that doesn't actually help you solve a similar challenge like the next time it comes around. It's it's I almost view it like more as luck because you actually don't understand, okay, like what was like the why behind the problem? Why is this thing, why is this thing working specifically within this contact context of this audience in this product, um, in this monetization model, like whatever whatever it is. And so instead, like rather than trying to give people like the answers, we say, okay, like we spend a lot of time basically reverse engineering things that like frontier leaders have done to think about and to to figure out like, how did they think about the problem and package it into like a repeatable methodology or framework. And that framework becomes the tool that you can then apply to a bunch of different contexts. So we give them the tool and then we give four or five examples of like how the tool could apply to a freemium business, um, a D2C subscription business, like whatever it is to show the tool in action in a bunch of different ways. Ultimately, that ends up being a much bigger impact, especially in a world where I think less and less people are going to spend their entire careers in like a single category. Like spending your whole career as a B2B marketer, I think is like people will switch and flip between categories. And so like learning how to navigate these flips, I think is much more is much more important. Using that tool is like how do they think through a problem in themselves in their own con- in their own unique context with their own unique set of variables. You built a lot of tools. Uh, and you've built a lot of tools. Frameworks, right? yeah. Yeah. Frameworks, a lot of frameworks. Like how how do you do that, right? Because, you know, is it is it Oh, I know the two by two. So let me figure out how to make everything two by two, <laughs> right? Um, but you've also done, you know, I think the market product fit conversation uh, that you kind of sparked was really, really good. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that you've built that I think a lot of people have used. Obviously, them building their own tools for their own situations is important. So, like, how do you build frameworks? Like, how do you think through this? Because I think you're you're probably one of the better ones out there in terms of that synthesis, which I think you're really, really good at. I don't know if I have the exact answer. I think. Uh, there's a few things that uh, have helped me over time. So I have not always been good at this, number one. Um, it's something that I feel like I've learned accidentally over time. But I think the first thing is like, okay, like why is a framework or tool important? Not only is it like a tool that helps you solve problems in a bunch of different contexts, but most importantly, it helps you communicate to a bunch of other people and establish a shared language. That sounds like, I think, like a little floofy, right? Like a shared language. Most problems I feel like stem from the fact that you say one thing and you think the other person is thinking about it in the same way as you are, but actually you're just talking apples and oranges, right? Um, and so like that shared language is actually important. And so like a framework is really helpful because you can just like get up on the whiteboard, draw it out, a line around like a shared language, a shared way of thinking about it. So like, how do you, how do you get there? You collect a ton of raw information, but then you think about like, what is the shape of this information? Um, so you joked about the two by two, right? But there's like, I don't know, I, I have this like deck of like, 40 different shapes. It could be like a two by two, it could be a pyramid, it could be um, a loop or a flywheel, right? The main thing is like, I just start thinking about what is literally the visual shape of this information. And usually I have like a couple, there's like a few kind of emerge. 
and I try to fit the information into that shape. And what ends up happening when I do that is like it either exposes like new insights of like how things connect to each other, or it exposes holes. And I'm like, mm, like this, this doesn't feel right. Like I feel like I'm using a hammer when I need a wrench. There's like a weird feeling. And so then it goes back to the drawing board of like finding a different shape or finding like what is the missing piece of information that connects all of the dots. And then after that, you pressure test it against a bunch of different situations. And oftentimes when you pressure test it, so like at Reforge, we'll press pressure test almost everything that we come up with against like a product like Pinterest and a product like Slack and a product like HubSpot and a product like Airbnb, like all different categories of products. And when you pressure test that, it does the same thing. It either um, exposes new holes and new nuances, or it exposes like new insights that that you didn't realize on the surface. So that's like the very rough process. But those three steps is a lot of work in repetitive cycles. And so we joke internally at Reforge is like when we onboard a new team lead who um, takes on a lot of this work is like by week four, week five, they're almost all essentially dreaming in the like information that they are. And so like the team lead, the, the, the strategy lead on monetization and pricing for example, like she just would come back every week and be like, well, yeah, I was dreaming about adding a new use case and how willingness to pay connects, like whatever, right? Like, or like, I, yeah, like, so, um, and that's when you really know that your mind is like trying to connect all of the dots um, over time. And so sometimes you just like, you hit a hole and you just like need to put it aside and then wait for the dots to connect uh, is kind of, is kind of part of it. We're getting this down to more and more of a science, um, but I don't think it's, a, I don't think we have it there just yet. But, uh, but the unlock for me was having a set of shapes that I could go back to for some reason. And I could start to like, try to pattern match, like how this information fits into a current shape and then it things like start to unlock for me yeah i'm really i'm very glad that you just told me all this because i've been trying to teach this i don't know i don't know what you went to school for but i at least i I went for economics and so you learn a lot of the shapes you know in economics at least uh and especially business classes right and i think what's kind of fascinating is it's really hard to teach first principle thinking it's really hard to teach categorical framework thinking because you finally have a moment in your life where there is that synthesis and you kind of forget all the steps up to it because you were basically like guessing and checking until it finally like unlocked. So now like AK, you know, the, the I believe the team lead you're referencing, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, if you put her onto another, you know, thing, like she's already thinking in this way, like, and she was already predisposed probably to do this, but she's now cool. What's my shape? What's this? What's that? And it's a little bit more of a formula, but I think the shape part is probably the important part. And I always find it funny when I think of the person who took the two by two and then applied, oh, we don't just need to have dots. We can have different size dots. The person who was like, oh, we can not only have different size dots, we can have different color dots too, right? Like the person who just kept advancing the framework because of some other like hole in there. Yeah, totally. I would say the other thing is like, um, most people just don't collect enough raw material. They try to jump to the answer too quickly. So we probably only use like less than half of the raw material that we gather after the research is done. We typically have like thousands of pages of research and that gets boiled down into, I don't know, maybe one tenth of that. 
Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of, to connect all of the dots, you've got to explore as many surface areas and angles as possible as a starting point. That's what I typically find too, is that a lot of people, so when I've been trying to help some people with this type of thinking, because I think as you get higher in a company, the problems get grayer and the problems get you know, more, they need more frameworks, right? To kind of- like And the more the skill is important, right? Because you, because there's two things that happen, right? The more senior you get in an organization, the more you have to get better at explaining what you and your team does to other people who do not have functional knowledge. The best VPs of engineering know how to explain technical problems to like the people in the, the other executives in the organization that have no technical knowledge. That is one of the keys of like how you get to like yeah. that type of level. So that happens. And then the other thing that happens is that you spend way more of your time communicating important concepts and problems to a broader group of people who have, are farther away from the thing that you are working on, your entire like team and stuff. And so you have to figure out how to how to communicate those things in in like just much simpler ways. Michael Peachy, who's at HubSpot, he's another VP of product revenue there. I remember like a couple years ago when he first stepped into like the director of VP role. I asked him like, "Yeah, what are you spending your time on?" And he's like, "Man, all I do is spend my time on drawing boxes." <laughs> boxes on PowerPoints, boxes on whiteboards, like all that. Kind of, I just like, I am like the VP of drawn boxes. And um, it, it was, he was joking to me, but it was kind of serious at the same time. And uh, yeah, that, that's what a lot of your job and that's I becoming am... sad. I always tell you know, people who are struggling with this, it's like spend 80% of your time, like if you look at a project, right? Like how are we going to implement this new system or what's the system look like? 80% should be on collecting data and synthesizing it through frameworks, right? And coming up with the, the, the thing that you're talking about. And it's kind of ironic because they teach you not to reason from metaphor, right? Like not to just copy what other people are doing, but then literally you're using metaphors to explain, I don't know, there's a meta point in here somewhere that I'm, I'm probably not going to come up with. We do think through analogies quite a bit um, because they, you have to get to the depth of understanding like the very extreme nuances, right? So like one concept we teach in, in Reforge are growth loops. We've defined about 20 different growth loops. Of course, like one of them being, we call it a financial viral loop, but a lot of people just refer it to as like incentivized referrals. On the surface, a lot of people think about that as the, like they all look the same on the surface, but there's actually like, a crazy amount of depth. The incentivized viral loop at the meditation app Calm works totally differently than the incentivized viral loop for like Uber drivers, which works fundamentally different for a different type of product. A lot of people are like, I'm just going to copy and paste this type of thing, but they don't understand like who the target audience is, what are the motivations, how those motivations were manifested in different ways at different steps of the loop, right? Like all of these different, very specific new, very specific nuances. But once you understand the nuances, then you can play with those nuances. And it tends, those tend to be the, like the unlock things. Lenny Rachitsky and uh, Dan Hockenmeyer just did this excellent post on first round about, um, I think it's a validate commit scale. And what they're essentially saying is like, a lot of people, and I see this all the time, is like a lot of startups get, uh, or a lot of uh, people earlier in their career get stuck in um, the validation phase. They try a lot of things, they validate it, and then they move on to like the next thing. Um, but the big unlocks in companies are when you like truly commit to one thing, and in their case, like commit to one channel 
Um, and they went through some like examples. And a lot of people just don't see beyond like the validation phase of like what's there. Uh, but like, look, like Airbnb had at least one product team, I think multiple product teams iterating on their incentivized viral loop for years. So like you add that up of what that probably cost in product managers and engineers, you're talking millions and millions of dollars of resources going on like that one thing. Right. And that's because the the depth of these things is much deeper than we all realize like on the surface. Do you think that's because most growth teams and, and by and large marketing teams, is it because of this ABC marketing like style of like, let's just copy and paste what Uber did, Calm did. Oh, that'll work for our B2B enterprise software. Like, like, is that, is that the trouble with a lot of folks have with growth? I mean, it's definitely a big part of it, right? Like there's a lot of things out there that make us think that that works, right? Or that's how things happened in other companies. I think kind of going back to the old adage of what you said you were saying before about you should be spending way more time on like defining the problem than you should on the solution. And um, that unfortunately does end up being true. But I think that's actually hard to do in most practical environments when you're dealing with like hitting quarterly OKRs and you're doing these team and weekly updates, um, all, the, all those things. And so it goes back to my story with Halligan, right? Like it took me some serious trust chips to buy myself the time to do that type of research. Right. It's hard to know like what expert level looks like because it's hard to see that because most of the expert level people aren't the ones writing the blog posts out there publicly. They're the ones who are like, you know, clocking in and clocking out and, you know, kind of totally. doing their focus. So it's interesting. Most of them don't have the incentives to, to like yeah. do that stuff. Right. It's a little bit what we've been trying to do with Report. I think there's just some other things to do it, especially in the product space. Um, I have this hypothesis that product management is going to go through a pretty big wave of specialization over the next mm. uh, three to five years. So if you think about the other functions like engineering, design, marketing, th they have all gone through specialization waves, right? So like in marketing, we now have performance marketers, content marketers, brand marketers, like all these different types of marketers. Yeah. And in engineering, we have front engineers, we have back end engineers, we have full stack engineers, we have, you know, like all these other specializations. But most people view product management as like there's product managers, right? Like one yeah. big bucket. And what this leads to is like, um, at least specifically in that function, this feeling that it's overwhelmed. I need to know everything. And what that leads to is knowing a little, a little bit about everything, but not a lot of any like one thing. And so I think growth was part of this first wave of specialization where you now see growth PMs who kind of specialize in a particular type of product problem. Mm -hmm. And I think you're starting to see that with like data products as well. So like how to use data to create user value through like AI, machine learning, like all that kind of stuff. And so I don't know what exactly the specializations are going to be, but um, I do think the specialization titles and paths help drive people towards depth in a specific area where we have not seen that specifically on the product management function. And so it's kind of a like, I need to know everything mentality, which is impossible, right? Yeah. Uh, it would take you decades to learn all this stuff. Do you think stuff, that that so. ends up merging growth and product together as one unit? Well, the best teams already have growth under product. Pinterest, HubSpot, Uber, Facebook, um, uh, Airbnb, like whatever it is, all of their growth teams are centered um, centered under product. Um, yeah. None of them are centered under marketing. And um, that's just because I think there's very few 
meaningful problems to solve and unlocks that don't involve some type of product or engineering. That doesn't mean that marketing is useless. That's actually opposite of what I'm saying. Um, I actually think um, marketers bring an amazing set of skills to the table that product managers and engineers and designers don't have either. It's just that in most organizations, they end up being um, siloed off in, in some way, shape or form. And it creates like these really tough tough canyons to bridge within an organization and all the best teams already have all of their like growth under product. And I think that will continue with the exception of companies where 90% of their growth motion is driven by sales and marketing. So primarily big enterprise types of accounts. We all like to say like how talking to customers is the key, but like most people don't actually talk to customers that much. (laughs) So I don't think it is. Is it just laziness? I don't know. resistance. It's definitely a lot of work. We're working on this new um, customer insights program. We're working with this awesome person. Um, his name's Bezad. He's the former head of uh, user research at Slack, and he was at Facebook before that. We're talking through all these examples right now, and it's been increasingly clear to me that um, like customer research is one of these topics that we all probably feel like we're like eight out of ten on the scale when we're like probably really two or twos or threes. <laughs> so <laughs> I will put myself in that bucket um, for sure. And I don't know exactly what cause like what causes that because maybe it's just like thinking like having talked to a lot of customers equates to being good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very clear in like the research and looking at a bunch of his examples of his past work that that is a hundred percent not true. Like that is not mm-hmm. true at all. And um, there's actually many different methods of customer research to execute them well figure to know how to combine them in the right combinations like to do that sense making and synthesis like all of those things there's like a ton of depth uh there's a lot of depth there over over time so what creates that mentality of like we think we're all eights out of eight out of tens when we're really two two twos or threes i'm not i'm not really sure but it's something that i've become aware of as like as like we put put together this this new program huge thank you to Brian Balfour for his time and this interview. Now you've got the tools to make the company tune harmoniously. We talked about how to avoid getting sucked into traps, using perspective to get everyone on the same page, creating tools to reveal answers, the importance of shared language, and understanding nuance to unlock frameworks. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 